Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Time to study the Word, so let's take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, and I'll open in prayer. Father, you are the God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. You have left your fingerprints on every aspect of of your creation such that the uh, heavens and the earth declare your glory and the evidence of your existence is so clear that we are without excuse. And nevertheless, though men know that you exist, they reject this, suppress this truth and unrighteousness, And we live in a culture today and in a world today where there is increasing antagonism to you, to your word, to believers as each year goes by. There is increasing antagonism to the truth of Scripture, even by those who uh, claim to be Christians, even by those who are Christians, simply because they are unwilling to submit to the authority of your word. And they have made such a habit and such a practice of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness that they suppress the truth in all area of human endeavor, and they don't even realize uh, how illogical, irrational, and consistent they are. Father, we pray that as we submit to your word that we might not uh, become guilty of arrogance, thinking that we have the truth because we can just as easily uh, be led astray by our own sin nature. We pray that we might recognize that your word is the absolute authority in every area of life and in everything that it addresses, and that as we study it, we pray that you would Uh, Use that to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, to continue to mature us in our spiritual walk, that we might be prepared to reign and serve with the Lord Jesus Christ in his kingdom to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in uh, on the New Covenant, taking a large Detour, it is not a rabbit trail, but taking a large detour to understand this whole concept of the new covenant. And it is so important to understand this, and there's so much said in the Old Testament that really we have taken a lot more time on this than I anticipated, but it's been good. I hope it's been as uh, as instructive for you as it has been for me because it's really helped me go through and put together a lot of things in the Old Testament that... Uh, you don't normally get a chance to uh, to work through and come to understand. And as I show in this chart relating to God's covenants, is that in the Old Testament, God made a covenant with Abraham that is the foundation of everything that happens in human history since Genesis 12. And this is uh, fundamental to understand and for the understanding and interpretation of history because it puts Israel and the Jews at the center of history. They are God's people, whether they are uh, in obedience to God or whether they are in apostasy. And the promise of God in Genesis 12:3 that I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you is uh, just as true today, though Israel is out of the land and in apostasy. It's just as true today as it was when they were walking with the Lord at the times of David and 
uh, Solomon in the Old Testament. So the Abrahamic covenant was given to Abraham. It had three basic provisions, land, seed, and blessing. God promised him a specific piece of real estate, gave the boundaries in the Old Testament. He promised that there would be a blessing would flow through a seed, and it was through that seed that all nations would be blessed. Each of these aspects are expanded in subsequent covenants. There was the real estate covenant in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, of in which you have the first hint of a covenant that would replace the Mosaic covenant that would provide not only uh, the land, but would also provide them with the uh, internal dynamics to be obedient to God, to, to uh, experience all the blessings that God promised them in the uh, Mosaic covenant. Then you had the Davidic covenant, which was a promise to David that through him the seed would come. Ultimately, that is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ and by Paul in Galatians. And then you have the new covenant, which is what will provide for a change in Israel. How's the volume? I almost sound like it's a little loud. It's, it touched, it's, bring it down just a little bit. sounds a little, I almost got a little ringing going on. Okay. So we have the real estate covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. These three covenants, which, which gives more specifics than the Abrahamic covenant, will all be fulfilled at the same time when Jesus Christ returns to the earth at the second coming to establish his kingdom. And the new covenant, in fact, as we'll see tonight, connects its fulfillment to the fulfillment of the land covenant and the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. By virtue of our relationship to Jesus Christ, as we saw in the first part of Hebrews 8, we are related to the new covenant. His high priestly ministry is established by what he did on the cross, and it is a high priestly ministry established in relation to the new covenant. The blood that was shed on the cross, the sacrifice, establishes the foundation for the new covenant, but its enactment does not come until Jesus Christ returns. It is not in full, in full force or any force today because they're not, the Jews aren't in the land and they're not, uh, they don't have the son of David or they don't have a Davidic seed leading them. So we will see this. Now just a couple other passages that we haven't looked at before. Ezekiel 16, 60 to 62, God says, Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. That's a reference back to the Mosaic covenant. I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. That is the uh, new covenant because it's everlasting. The new covenant replaces the, Mo uh, replaces the Mosaic covenant. Then God says, Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. That is a reference to believers from other dispensations, from Gentiles. Those that were older would be believers prior to, um, prior to Israel's calling under Abraham and as subsequently would be uh, those in the church age. You will receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. In other words, not on the uh, basis of this, of the uh, Mosaic covenant. So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. That is future tense, and that is the new covenant. Then in Jeremiah 30, the chapter before the main statement of the new covenant, which is Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 to 34, Jeremiah 30, verse 10, I will surely save you out of a distant place. 
This is going to give us the time when the new covenant uh, is put into effect. I will save you out of a distant place. Deuteronomy 29 said that God would remove them from the land. Uh, I will save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of exile. This isn't just Babylon. This is broader than that. And when he restores them to the land, Jacob will again have peace and security. No one will make them afraid. I am with you, God says. I will save you, declares the Lord, though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you. That has not happened yet. That occurs at the end of the tribulation period when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to defeat the armies of the nations under the Antichrist. This is seen prophetically in Psalm 2, that the kings of the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed. Though I completely destroyed all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only with justice. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. Okay, now we've gone through the scriptures. We looked at Hosea, then we looked at Isaiah, now we're in Ezekiel, looking at all these various passages where God mentions the fact that he is going to give them this new covenant. Uh, the term new covenant is only used in Jeremiah 31, 31, but the other passages refer to a future, a future covenant that is uh, eternal. So what we've seen so far is that the terminology seems to relate to regeneration, but that the Jews individually have already been regenerate in terms of personal salvation, justification, salvation. But nationally, there has to be a cleansing in preparation for God's future plans during the millennial kingdom. And so this regeneration is a regeneration that is going to supply new spiritual dynamics. They will have the Holy Spirit and manifestations of the Holy Spirit that we do not have in the church age. And there will be a, an internalization of God's word and the truth of God that goes beyond anything we can imagine. And all Jews will be believers in the millennial kingdom and will be obedient to them because God promises to give them a new heart which I think indicates a new mind, a new internal dynamic, and he is going to put his spirit within them, and we'll again review some of these passages and what we're going to see coming up. But these passages, as I've said before, are connected to both the land covenant and the both the land covenant and the uh, uh, <clears throat> Davidic covenant. Now I want you to open your Bibles with me to Ezekiel. And tonight we're going to move from Ezekiel 36 into Ezekiel 37. And if you are a fan of the oldies stations, every now and then they will play a song from the 50s called Them Bones. And this is a chapter that they got that idea from, that the, you know, Ankle bones connected to the leg bone, the leg bones connected to the thigh bone, and that's what this is based on. <clears throat> and the picture here in the first 14 verses is how God is going to begin to bring the Jews back to the land. And before he breathes his spirit upon them, which is the new covenant, it's not regeneration. He's going to bring them back to the land 
uh, bit by bit. First, he will bring them back uh, as as bones, and then he will put sinew on them and uh, gradually pull them uh, pull the nation back together again. I believe that is what we are beginning to see today. And the the image there is that Ezekiel is set down in the midst of a valley. It's full of bones, and God caused me to pass by them all around. This is 37.2. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. Now, I don't, I'm not sure about this, but I have heard a number of people think, well, what is it that the bones represent the nation of Israel, and what dried out the bones other than the ovens of Auschwitz? So that may be poetic license, but I think there is an, possibly an application there. Uh, because of the, there is this emphasis on the fact that they are dry, and it could simply mean that emphasizing the fact that there is no uh, death, I mean, no life there, and it has been a very long time since there was life there. Uh, verse 3, and he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. And again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And then there's an order given. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you. I will cover you with skin and put breath in you, which is the last stage. So there's a process of pulling these bones back together and then putting sinews upon them and then flesh upon them and finally skin and then um, and then finally and last of all, uh, breath, and this is related to the giving of the Holy Spirit, which I believe occurs with the new covenant. It fits with what we read in Ezekiel chapter thirty-six that God would give them a new heart and a new spirit and put His Spirit within them. Now, all that's just introduction to the chapter, verse fifteen. Is where it starts to get interesting. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. So this is the second vision related to this restoration of Israel as a spiritually vital people. Verse 16, as for you, son of man, so God is speaking, take a stick for yourself and write on it. So he takes a first stick and he writes upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. So the first stick is Judah, and then you take another stick. He's instructed to take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Now, what does that mean? Y'all are fairly educated, and you can probably figure that out. First time I saw this verse, I don't think I had read through Ezekiel. First time I saw this book was when a Mormon missionary used it. And... It's important to understand this. What they will do is they will come and say, see, a stick is what they use for a scroll, and all books were written on sticks. And the, there is one stick here which is related to uh, Judah and one that's related to Joseph. Joseph's the northern tribes. And so you have one stick. That's the Old Testament related to, uh, related to uh, Judah. And the other stick is a second book of Revelation. That's related to the ten lost tribes, which ended up over North America and became the Mormons. Now, I knew that wasn't right, but I didn't know why it wasn't right. And like I, I pointed out several times, it's one thing to know what's right 
but you can still get deceived if you don't know why the other view is wrong. So in order to think, you not only need to understand to some degree what truth is, but you need to understand why when you hear error, it is error. Not just because you go, well, that doesn't feel right. And we saw that the other night when we watched the video on Oprah's New Religion, and she said, well, the, I heard this preacher talking about God who was a jealous God, and that just didn't feel right. Well, I can tell you that there are a lot of things that we should do in life that don't feel right. You know, a colostomy uh, you know, coloss- <laughs> is one of those things. So there's a lot of things that don't feel right. I thought of that the other day, and I said, you know, I've got to have an earthy description here for this new earth thing that Oprah has, so... A colonoscopy just doesn't feel good, so we've got to uh, use something other than feelings to determine truth. So, well, I got everybody awake again. So you can't base your, your thinking on feeling. You have to know what is wrong and why it is wrong to understand uh, and to really understand what's going on and be thinking clearly. And what's happening here is simply an image, and this is how God operates all the way through Ezekiel, is he tells Ezekiel to do certain things because the, the enactment pictures something. And what he's going to do by taking these two sticks, and one does represent the northern kingdom, that's uh, Joseph. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh were both part of the northern ten tribes. Ephraim was more dominant, and often the northern kingdom not only is referred to as Israel, but in other places it's referred to as Ephraim. So Ephraim stands for the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom is Judah. And uh, so they're to take these two sticks. And in verse 17, God says, Join them to one another for yourself into one stick, that they will become one in your hand. It's a very simple image that God is going to take the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, which were separated and divided at the uh, tax revolt of Jeroboam I, when Solomon died and Rehoboam, his son, became the king of Israel, he increased the taxes, and the northern ten tribes uh, separated, had a tax revolt led by Jeroboam I, and from that time up to, including the present, until the return of Christ, the nation would remain divided. And so what this is to symbolize is there would be a time in the future when God would reunite the tribes and restore them to the land. Verse 17, join them to one to another for yourself into one stick, that they will become one in your hand. And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, verse 19, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribe of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it and with the stick of Judah and will make them one stick and they will be one in my hand. This is not talking about the canon of Scripture or scrolls. It is simply a picture that God would in the future restore the nations. And verse 20, God says, And the sticks on which you write will be in your hands before their eyes. Thus say to them. Now this is where we start getting into a little more specifics related to the Related to the new covenant. Thus say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel 
from among the nations. So at this particular time, they are out among the nations, scattered among the, the, the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. This is not the return in 538 from Babylon. It is from all the nations. It has not yet occurred. And verse 22, I will... Uh, I left out 22. I'll read it. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over, over them all. They shall no longer be two nations nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. Critical statement. And that, that explains the imagery. See, God doesn't leave us to guess what his word means. He tells us what it means so that we're not left to contemplate our navel and wait for a little liver quiver to figure out what God might be telling us. He explains the imagery precisely. He is going to restore the unity of the people. There will be one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, the repetition there reinforces that he is talking about the, the traditional historical piece of real estate. He's not talking about putting them in Kenya or finding some piece of real estate in South America for all the Jews to go to, but their traditional homeland. And they shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. So this has never happened. Verse 23, they shall not... They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols. The word for defile here is, is translated into the Greek of meino, but it's the opposite of being cleansed, which we looked at last time. It's ritual cleansing. And if you recall, and you can make a cross-reference in your, in your own notes to go back and check this, but in chapter 36, when we looked at verse 25, and I said, uh, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. This is the, talking about the same thing. It is, it is the, a cleansing, and the result of this, 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 and it's a ceremonial cleansing. This isn't talking about them getting saved, because they're already, remember, personally regenerate. It is now a national cleansing that takes place because of the national disobedience of idolatry, and the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their other transgressions. They will not do this anymore. They're not going to sin in this way anymore. Period. Now, that's hard for us to understand because we want to say, well, what about volition? Well, I don't know, but it's a different dispensation with different dynamics, so we have to figure out God knows what he's doing and has... Uh, his lessons that he's going to demonstrate. And what he's demonstrating here is that ultimately for man to experience the blessing of God, he can't do it on his own at all. God's the one who not only has to do, do the work of salvation, but he has to change the internal dynamics so that man will be obedient. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. This is what happens at the beginning of the uh, millennial kingdom, verse 24. Now, in the past, in these previous verses, from 15 down to 19, the emphasis has been on reuniting them where? In the land, fulfillment of the land covenant. Now, starting in verse 24, 
when they're reunited in the land, David becomes their king again. This is a resurrected David. Jesus Christ is ruling the earth, but David will be resurrected, and David will be ruler over his people. This is not talking about the seed of David or a descendant of David. He says, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Now, if I were to take the time, I would go back to look at these phrases like walk in my judgments, observe my statutes, and do them. And I would see that in the Mosaic Law, these were commands that they were to do these things. They were to walk and observe and do. But if they didn't, there would be disciplinary consequences. But we don't see that kind of if-then terminology here in, verse, uh, in these verses. It is then they will do this. There, there will not be sin. There will not be disobedience. There will not be a failure among any of the Jews in the millennial kingdom. And they will have one ruler, David, my servant. Verse 25, Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, they, they shall dwell there. Notice where your fathers dwelt. They didn't dwell in Kenya. You know, there was an attempt to, to establish uh, uh, when the Jews were returning, trying to find a homeland back in the early days of Zionism, the late uh, 1800s. There were a few groups here or there that said, well, maybe we could go uh, get some land in Africa or maybe we could go to South America. A few other places were suggested. But the final decision was, no, Jews need to be in the traditional homeland of Jews and we need to go back to uh, to Zion. And that's where they will dwell. They have a God-given right to the land, but they don't have a right to experience blessing unless there is an obedient heart. So they're in the land now. You see this gradual return, but they're in apostasy. They have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, verse And last point, the last part of that verse, that they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. A restatement of the fact that David is going to rule them. And in none of these passages in Ezekiel that talk about David is there a suggestion of a descendant of David. It, it calls him David. And, and that means that David is going to be resurrected and he will be the, the prince, the ruler over Israel in the millennial kingdom. Verse 26, God says, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. We've seen this terminology used several times before in relation to the new covenant. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Now, remember what I said? The people have to be regathered, and they come back to the land, and mostly in apostasy. Then they will be in the land during the tribulation period, and there will be tremendous judgments on them. There will be, though there will be hundreds of thousands, I believe, that will trust Christ as their Savior. They will flee into the wilderness when they see the abomination of desolation. And then they will unite as a people in a hiding down near Petra. The Bible calls it Basra, which is in that hill country in uh, southern Jordan across the, uh, actually it's to the south, southeast of the Dead Sea. And uh, there they will call upon the name of the Lord. We'll see that, I think, before we're done tonight. 
They will call upon the name of the Lord, and Jesus Christ then will come and rescue them and lead an army out of Edom. And the scripture says that blood is dripping from his robes as he is destroying the enemies of Israel, leading them with the tribe of Judah in the vanguard, leading them in a victorious assault on Jerusalem, which is now where the Antichrist is located. And after all this death, there has to, and, and the, the defilement of the temple by the Antichrist during the tribulation period with the abomination of desolation, there has to be a cleansing of the land because God is once again going to take up his dwelling presence on the land of Israel, establish a temple, and he will dwell with his people there. And that's what this is talking about. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. That's why there has to be this national cleansing. My tabernacle, this is the word for dwelling uh, place. My tabernacle also will, will be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So this becomes a, a, a testimony for them. Just hold your place there for just a minute. And I want to show a corollary passage that's very important. We haven't gone to this before. And this is in Isaiah chapter 2. Or we can even drop back a little bit into the end of chapter 1 because it talks about how he's going to judge and purify um, purify Israel. In verse 24 of chapter 1, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, says, I will get rid of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross. That's all the impurities that are there. That's the cleansing. That's part of all the judgments in Revelation. I will purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness after the cleansing, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors, of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Okay, skip down to chapter 2, verse 1. Then the word, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, uh, Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, now it shall come to pass in the latter days, that puts us in the millennial kingdom, that the mountain of the Lord's house, there will be a, that with the earthquake that occurs at the end of the tribulation period, that splits the Mount of Olives, I think there's going to be a massive upheaval of the land, which is going to provide this new location for the mountain of the Lord. It's not the present temple mount. It's going to be much larger. The millennial temple is going to be one mile square. That's one mile on each side. So it's going to be uh, much, much larger. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. That's the same thing we're reading in Ezekiel chapter 37 that the nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel where my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. In Isaiah, all the nations shall flow to it. 
Many people will come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. Now, these are Gentiles. What, what, what we've read about the New Covenant is that there will be no cause for a man to teach his neighbor. But that's among Israel. But now the Gentiles are going to have to come, and they're going to have to be taught. And, and they say, um, he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge beneath, between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war no more. This is the what will happen under the Messiah in the millennial kingdom. Now, this verse is ripped out of context and placed at the over the entrance to the United Nations building in uh, in New York, which shows that they are claiming for themselves a a religious messianic purpose and when i was there uh in in the past they have they have in the courtyard various uh statues to greek gods and goddesses mythological uh figures so it's it's clear that this is a religious entity making religious claims and yet americans walk around going oh everybody's secular in the whole world like we are and uh, we need to let the un take away our national um national identity and our national security and and we're just we're just playing into the kind of scenario that will dominate at the um, uh, at the to feed into the rise of the antichrist okay well let's go to our next passage on the new covenant in amos amos chapter 9 or amos if you prefer the Hebrew pronunciation. Amos chapter 9. Again, this is a prophetic passage related to the establishment of the, of the new covenant. Behold, days are coming. This is a traditional opening, standard opening for prophecy. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. This is a, um, a picture of, of, of uh, actually, this is a picture of blessing. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. It's fo- focusing on this restoration. And they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and and eat their fruit. And I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. So it connects this time of unprecedented blessing and prosperity for Israel with their, their being back in the land. Other passages such as Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. I don't have a slide on this. Zechariah 14, verse 9 states, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. Zechariah chapter 14, 9. He's the king over all the earth. So we see once again this emphasis on restoration. And now... Um, 
one other passage in Zechariah, just turn back two chapters, Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. This connects back to the fact that Ezekiel 36, I will pour forth my spirit, I will put my spirit within them. Ezekiel 37, and now Zechariah 12, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. Now, this is not talking about when they finally realize Jesus is the Messiah. What precedes this is this outpouring of the Spirit, and in this outpouring of the Spirit and the new spiritual understanding and reality that these already saved Jews have, they're going to realize in a much greater way than, much more significant way than they ever had before, just exactly what they have done, and they will see how they rejected the Son of God and how they crucified the Son of God, and they will mourn. This is not when they're saved. They're already saved. But now when they get this new manifestation of the Spirit, they're going to realize just how terrible their failure has been. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. In fact, this passage is quoted in the first chapter of Revelation. Now, we have one more passage to go to in the Old Testament related to the New Covenant, and that is Joel 2, 28 to 31. Now, this is an important passage, as I pointed out in the past, because this passage is quoted by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, just as the disciples are gathered, and there's only 11 of them there, just as the disciples are gathered uh, at the portico of Solomon there at the, at the temple on the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit descends to give birth to the church, and there are flames of fire that appear over the, over the disciples, and they speak in languages. Now, there's a whole list of different people groups and language, language groups that are present in Jerusalem for one of these festivals. There's three pilgrim festivals in the Jewish ritual calendar where Jewish males all have to come to Jerusalem and sacrifice. And that was the event. And at that event, the Holy Spirit descends, and they speak in languages, and they're accused. People are looking at them going, well, aren't these Galileans? They must be drunk already. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. How? Uh, what's all this babbling? Because they, they couldn't understand some of the languages. And Peter then says, these men are not drunk as you think. But this is what the prophet Joel said. And this is the passage. It will come about after this. The after this, if you read the previous verses, describes the horrors of judgment on uh, Israel during the tribulation period. And then God, and, and, and their deliverance. And in verse 28, I will, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this is the outpouring of the, of the Holy Spirit 
upon Israel. And then, if you read into the beginning of chapter 3, or verse 32, next verse. And it shall come about after, the, after that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Not save soteriological justification, but deliverance from the calamity that is about to befall those who, those Jews who have survived. Those who call, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So this is a picture in these verses of an event that will happen in the future for Joel and in the future for us when God pours out the Holy Spirit upon uh, the Jews and they call upon the name of the Lord and they will be delivered. It's physical deliverance at this particular time. Now, I've belabored this point again and again as we've gone through this, that when that this is this fits all that other New Covenant language that we've seen in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, the passages that we just looked at in uh, Amos and in Zechariah, that at the time the New Covenant is established, God pours forth His Spirit. Now, when if you come along and you read Joel 2, I mean, excuse me, you read Acts 2, when Peter quotes this passage, if you think he is saying that, that the events of Pentecost are literally fulfilling this prophecy, then you have a problem. Because this prophecy, nothing in this prophecy happened in Acts 2. What this prophecy talks about, and it's quoted precisely in, in Acts 2, is that your sons and daughters will prophesy. That doesn't happen on the day of Pentecost. Your old men will dream dreams. That didn't happen on the day of Pentecost. Your young men will see visions. That did not happen on the day of Pentecost. Even on your on the male and female servants, I will pour my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky, on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. That did not happen on the day of Pentecost. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That did not occur on the day of Pentecost. Not one thing mentioned in this passage occurs on the day of Pentecost. But Peter says this is what what the prophet Joel spoke about. What did happen on the day of Pentecost was that the Holy Spirit descended and flames of fire appeared over the heads of the disciples and they spoke in languages that they had not previously learned. Tongues is a bad translation today. Uh, The word tongues refers to languages, still used that way, but because of the Pentecostal movement, there's a problem there with misunderstanding. They spoke in the languages of these Jews who had come as pilgrims to Jerusalem so that they could communicate the gospel to them. And there was a purpose for that, that the Jew coming to Jerusalem would expect to hear the language of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and Solomon, which was Hebrew. And if they came and they heard the language of Gentiles, According to Isaiah 28, it would be a sign of judgment. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And so they're speaking in these languages, and it's a result of this manifestation of God the Holy Spirit. And when Peter says this is what the prophet Joel said, he's not saying this is a fulfillment like Micah 5.2, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, is fulfilled literally when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. 
it is a similarity. There's only one point of similarity between Joel 2 and Acts 2, and that's the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Peter is saying. This is like, these are spiritual manifestations from the Holy Spirit, just like those mentioned in, uh, in Joel 2. But this isn't the coming, uh, the arrival of the new covenant, and it's not the arrival of the kingdom. Although that could come because in the next chapter he says, if you would repent, the times of refreshing would come. So Joel 2 is a crucial passage for understanding this because this shows us that the new covenant comes at the and is put into effect with the giving of the Holy Spirit at the end of the tribulation period. Now, there's a very important passage to, under, <coughs> to uh, connect this to in order to see how this is fulfilled in the New Testament. And I want you to turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Now, I'm not going to get involved in a lengthy analysis of Romans 9, 10, and 11. The focal point of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is on Israel and God's justice toward Israel. And in Romans 9, the focus is on the past. Romans 10 begins to connect some things together. And in Romans chapter 10, we have a very well-known verse. It's usually taken out of context. But it also fits this whole repentance framework for Israel. Remember, they need to turn to God before they're going to be, before they're going to begin to be delivered. And if you look at Romans chapter 10, let's just start in verse um, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That's the idea is that the message is available. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that the Lord, the Lord Jesus... And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And everybody goes to that last word and goes saved, and they go, This is talking about getting into heaven. This is talking about justification, salvation. But that's not the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is talking about how God's grace towards Israel is ultimately going to be manifested because at the very beginning of Romans chapter 9, the question is, Has God set aside Israel? He's going to come back to that question in Romans 11. Has God permanently set aside uh, Israel? And he hasn't. And he says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be, and the word sozo sometimes means physical healing. Sometimes it means deliverance from uh, danger. And I think that's what it is here, because look at the context. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. That's it. If you believe in your, in your heart, which is your, the thinking part of your soul, that Jesus died for your sins, at that instant you are received the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and at that point you are justified and you have eternal life. You are born again. All those things happen at the same time. With the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. 
The Jews that arrive in Basra are in, in, in the area of Petra are already justified. But they have to call upon the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ, when he's talking to his disciples, and he's on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, and he weeps over Jerusalem because of how they've treated the prophets. And he says, I will not come again until you call upon me. This is what this is talking about. This is what Joel is talking about in our passage here, that that um, I will um in verse 32, it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. And that's quoted right here in this passage when we get down to verse 13. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be pushed to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be, and here it's translated saved, but it's the same word, it's delivered. So that when the Jews come together as a national group, as a corporate group, uh, in the desert of, of Basra, they will be on the verge of mass extinction by the Antichrist, and they will call on the name of the Lord. They have already expressed faith in their heart and are justified, but they need to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah to deliver them. Okay, now let's just skip over to chapter 11. Chapter 11 starts off, I say, then has God cast away his people? This is in verse 1. Certainly not. He has not permanently cast them away. And the, the remainder of that chapter, Paul is going to use this analogy to show that God has just temporarily set Israel aside so that he can now bless the Gentiles, but that in the future Israel will be restored to a place of blessing. And he uses this illustration of the olive tree. And in the olive tree, the, the roots represent the Abrahamic covenant of blessing. And, and the Jews are temporarily removed. They're, they're pictured as the natural olive branches that are cut off, and that refers to discipline, not loss of salvation. They're, they're cut off, from, taken from the path of blessing, and wild olive branches are grafted in, and that's Gentiles. We enter in and we receive blessing. But lest Gentiles become arrogant thinking, well, you know, look how good we are, those lousy, rotten Jews don't succumb to anti-Semitism, in other, other words. If you do, then God can just as easily remove the Gentiles from the path of blessing and restore the natural branches, which is what he will do. And then we come to the main uh, the main verse down in about verse 26. Now, and it says, And so all Israel shall be saved. Now, the way that's constructed in English grammar, this looks like he's that, that Paul has given this discourse on the grafting in of the natural olive branches. Verse 25, he said, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Once that fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then there's going to be another change. That's the idea. 
But the and so isn't a conclusion. The word you have here in the Greek translated so in um, the New American Standard translated thus in the uh, New King James is a word that should be translated and in this manner that I'm getting ready to tell you about, Israel will be saved. It's the same word that's used in John 3.16. When it says, for God so loved the world, people tend to think that means for God loved the world so much. That's not what it means. When it said that word so is the same word that's here, and it means for God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And what Romans 11 is saying, and in this manner and thusly all Israel shall be saved. And so this sets, sets it up. And what the verse says is, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Who's the deliverer? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he turns away ungodliness from uh, Jacob. And this is when he is giving, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh and putting his spirit within them. And he says, for this is my covenant when I take away their sins. And that's what occurs, and we covered this Sunday morning in Daniel 9, when I talked about those six purposes for the, uh, to, at the, that, that are brought about at the end of Daniel's 70th week, that I will bring an end to transgression and, uh, and atonement and all of that. that. This is that end of transgression, end of sin for Israel, that this is when he takes away their sins nationally, is when he comes back at the second coming and the Jews are restored. And verse 28, uh, Paul goes on to say, Concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning their election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And that passage, is that verse is misquoted everywhere. What that means is that God called out Abraham and made a promise to his descendants that they would be in that land, and he is not going to go back on that word. He is not going to reject Israel finally and totally. So what we've done tonight is to pull together a lot of these loose threads. We've gone through in the past weeks, we've gone through the, all the different passages related to the new covenant as the everlasting covenant. And we have seen all the different promises in Hosea and Isaiah, Jeremiah, and now Ezekiel and how they relate to all of these different manifestations of what will happen when Israel is brought back to the land when they are, they, they, those Jews that survived the tribulation are already saved, justified before they go escape down to Basra. At Basra, as a corporate group, they call upon the name of the Lord to deliver them. God delivers them. Uh, he's already poured out his Holy Spirit. All this happens in a very close time frame, and then uh, he's going to defeat the Antichrist and then establish the, uh, the, the nation, the kingdom, and the millennial kingdom. And all of that happens within that time period. And next time what we'll do is we're going to come back and I want to go through a summary of all of this. Just give us one last shot to make sure we're pulled it all together and then go into those New Testament passages that everybody wants to talk about as sp- that when Jesus is on the Lord's table. Too bad we didn't get there today since we have the Lord's table Sunday. When Jesus says, this is the, the new covenant of my blood, which is given for you, and Matthew is recorded, this is the blood of my covenant, what is he talking about? In Second Corinthians, 
when Paul says we are ministers of the new covenant, what is he talking about? How does the new covenant relate to the church? Now that we've taken about 10 weeks to go through all these Old Testament passages and to understand what the new covenant is, we can be prepared to understand how it relates to the church. See, the problem is, I hope you appreciate this, is that we can't just come in here and flippantly talk about this stuff because the, the, those, those believers who first received Hebrews understood all this. They, they, most of these people had memorized the Old Testament in Hebrew or Aramaic. They knew all of this, whereas we don't. And, and what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's pulling all this together to make application. The problem that we have in, in our modern churches is that we don't have enough of a grounding in all of these passages in the Old Testament to pull all these threads together and truly appreciate and understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying and the application. And this becomes foundational to understand what comes up in the rest of chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And as we go into this, we're going to have to take some other detours to go through Exodus, the tabernacle, the articles in the tabernacle, sacrifices, offerings, all these things, because they form the backdrop for understanding all these things. So a lot of times before we can really start even appreciating what the what the, what the circle of application is, we have to understand just what is it that the Bible is actually saying. And then once we understand what it is saying, then it, the application just sort of becomes obvious. The problem with most people and why most people get con- confused is because they don't take the time to go through and do this, this kind of uh, nitty-gritty hard work. So let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we can get into your word and look at these things and put things together and begin to see the, how the, the whole mosaic of your plan uh, fits together in such a uh, marvelous way. And Father, you have included us in this plan as part of the church and our relationship to our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who established the new covenant. And by virtue of that relationship, we have access to so many blessings that are ours on the basis of his sacrifice on the cross. We pray that we might not take this lightly and realize how important it is to understand all these things because they establish the dynamics of our spiritual life today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.